Joe Wright, pastor of a church in Wichita, Kansas, was invited to serve as the house's guest chaplain by a state legislator who was also a member of Wright's church. Accordingly, Pastor Wright composed a prayer and he read it at the opening of the legislature on January 23rd, 1996. After the prayer, he departed unaware of the ruckus that he had created until his church secretary called him on his car phone to ask what he had done. Reportedly, one member walked out in protest, three others gave speeches critical of Wright's prayer, and another blasted Wright's message of intolerance. One person said that Wright, quote, made everyone mad. My goodness, what did he pray that was so bad? Here was his prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you today to ask your forgiveness and to seek your direction and guidance. Lord, we know your word says, woe to those who call evil good, but that's exactly what we've done. We've lost our spiritual equilibrium and inverted our values. We confess that we have ridiculed the absolute truth of your word and called it moral pluralism. We've worshiped other gods and called it multiculturalism. We've endorsed perversion and called it alternative lifestyle. We've exploited the poor and called it the lottery. We've neglected the needy and called it self-preservation. We've rewarded laziness and called it welfare. We've killed our unborn and called it choice. We've shot abortionists and called it justifiable. We've neglected to discipline our children and called it building esteem. We've abused power and called it political savvy. We've coveted our neighbor's possessions and called it ambition. We've polluted the air with profanity and pornography and called it freedom of expression. We've ridiculed the time-honored values of our forefathers and called it enlightenment. Search us, O God, and know our hearts today. Try us and see if there be any wicked way in us. Cleanse us from every sin and set us free. Guide and bless these men and women who have been sent here by the people of Kansas and who have been ordained by you to govern this great state. Grant them your wisdom to rule, and may your decisions direct us to the center of your will. I ask it in the name of your Son, the living Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In his commentary on 2 Corinthians, Kent Hughes tells this story. Many years ago, a number of government officials in The Hague, who were more fashionable than religious, invited Van Corton, the famous court preacher of Paris, who was of Dutch descent, to preach in their state church chapel. But because Van Corton considered their interests more social than spiritual, more a curiosity than a zeal for truth, he declined to come. When the invitation was repeated several times, he agreed to accept on the condition that all the government officials would be present. They agreed. The famous Van Corton appeared and preached on the Ethiopian from Acts chapter 8. His sermon had four points. One, a government official who read his Bible, something rare. Two, a government official who acknowledged his ignorance, something rarer still. Three, a government official who asked a lesser person for instruction, something extremely rare. Four, a government official who was converted, the rarest of all. 
Van Corton never received a second invitation. <laughs> tough talk from tough preachers. Two illustrations of telling it like it is. And this is the toughness that we see in the Apostle Paul, preacher Paul, at the end of his letter of 2 Corinthians, which we've been studying this fall. Beginning with chapter 10, Paul addresses those in the church who continue to reject his authority and cast aspersion on his character and his ministry. In that chapter, Paul contrasted the boasting of the false teachers, which was improper, with boasting that's found its grounding in God himself. And he closes that chapter by closing from the prophet Jeremiah, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. And then he added this, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Paul continues this now in chapter 11. And, and he takes on those who have been deceived. He takes on those who have been scammed by these false teachers. And as we look at the chapter, there are two groups of people that we see. One are those false teachers whom he sarcastically calls super apostles. And the other are all the people in the church that are still being led into deception by those false teachers. So keep that in mind when we go through the chapter. The bulk of what he's going to talk to is to those dissenters still. He'll also refer to the false teachers. Uh, so let's find our way over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. If you want to grab a Bible in front of you, page 1232, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul's going to begin the chapter by expressing his concerns for this minority group within the church at Corinth that are still opposed to him, to his apostolic authority, and to his ministry. So notice how he begins verse 1. He says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I'm not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I'm unskilled in speaking, I'm not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we've made this plain to you in all things. Paul opens this chapter here by setting it into the context of the role of a Jewish father who saw it as his responsibility to guard and protect his daughter until he could present her to the bridegroom. A real picture. Remember that, that girls, and I'll use that term, in, in that day, in that culture, were usually married by the time they were 13 or 14. And so that it was the father's duty to guard the purity of his daughter. And so Paul picks up that imagery and says, that's what I want to do with you is present you pure to God. And of course, the New Testament has the picture of believers corporately, collectively as the church being the bride of Christ. And, and, and the scriptures talk about us being presented to Christ as the bride uh, for the marriage feast and celebration in heaven. 
But here's Paul's fear for these rebellious and deceived believers that they would be led astray. It's one word in the original language of the New Testament and it means to be corrupted, to be morally depraved. And so he fears that by their being deceived, they're going to be corrupted. They're going to be morally depraved. Now the words in in the text, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version, that says a sincere and pure devotion is literally, the words would be, the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Simon Kistemaker writes, the word sincerity means simplicity, which effectively rules out every trace of duplicity. It signifies being exclusively devoted to one person or cause with respect to thinking, speaking, and doing. The term purity refers to moral blamelessness. I think that Paul's fear is appropriate for our day and our age. We should fear for those who say they are Christians but in danger of being deceived and led astray from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. Where do we see that in our culture? How does it show up? And to be honest, where do we even see it in the church today? Well, I think at least a couple of things right away came to my mind as I was thinking about it this week. One is the privatizing of truth. There, there's, there's, there's a, a philosophy, a, a mindset today that truth has been privatized. It, it's private truth. Uh, and even Christians have fallen for this deception. David Wells writes in his book, No Place for Truth, or Whatever Happened to Evangelical Theology, this. Listen, in order to think biblically about our world, we have to put ourselves into the minds of Jeremiah, Isaiah, Paul, and Peter. And accept for ourselves the norms and habits by which they functioned. And their starting place was this category of truth. Truth to them was not privatized. It was not synonymous with personal insight, with private intuition. It was not sought in the self at all, as a matter of fact, but in history. The history that God wrote and interpreted And it was, therefore, objective, public, and authoritative. Here lay the great divide between the pagans and the prophets. The pagans thought of truth in terms of private intuition, and the prophets did not. The same divide today separates moderns, for whom truth is a matter of private insight from biblical Christianity for which it cannot be. And so we state that truth is not meant to be private, that it belongs in the public arena, and therefore is that's where it finds its discussion. Here's another one that we run into, truth as subjective experience, not objective thought. How many of you have heard somebody say something like this? Well, if it works for you, that's great. If it works for you, in other words, the emphasis on you. Uh, If it feels good, do it. And so today, we no longer ask the question, is it true? But we ask the question, does it work? In other words, pragmatism has won out over truth in our culture today. Wells, later on in his book, writes, this biblical faith is about truth. God has described himself and his works to us in the language of the Bible, and it is quite presumptuous for us to say that we've found a better way to hear him 
through our own experience and a better way to find reality by constructing it within the self. So the danger then is truth becomes relative. And it is what you want it to be, not absolute, that we have to discover its true meaning. And we see the consequences of these two things in issues, for example, like the distorted meaning of marriage. We find it in the dismissal of sexual purity. We see it in the pursuit of security through prosperity and meaning through materialism. All of these things flow out of this whole issue of truth. Evil has become good and good has become evil, as Isaiah said in his writings. So that being the case, how do we guard ourselves then against this? How do we, how do we protect ourselves from being led astray from the truth? Well, the Apostle Paul has something to say about that. I want you to turn ahead a couple books over to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Listen, he's talking here about the body of Christ. He's talking about walking in a manner worthy of the calling by which you've been called. Uh, he talks about the Spirit giving gifts. But then he comes down to describe the functioning of the church. Um, and so I'm going to pick up, start reading at verse 11. Paul says that God gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds or pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that, here's the purpose, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined together and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I think the question for us as Christians is this, are we growing up or are we simply growing older? I've said before, I've often wondered, wouldn't it be interesting if you could just wave a wand over a church meeting? I don't care, not ours, anybody's church. And everybody was in an instant dressed that represented their spiritual maturity. How many would be in diapers? Now, if you're a new Christian, that's okay. Okay? Babies don't just arrive, you know, as full grown. They're babies and they grow up. And that's great. That's what it ought to be. And that's fine. But if you've been a Christian for 10 years or 15 years or 25 years, have you grown up? And the only way we do it is, is our relationship with Christ, growing and being grounded in the truth of God's word, that this is what then shapes the way we think. And we begin to understand and apply biblical truth into our lives. Paul says that these false teachers, and here was the evidence, they introduced a different Jesus. They introduced a different spirit. They introduced a different gospel. So the Jesus that they were declaring and portraying was not the one that we see in the gospels. One who came to serve. One who came to suffer. Uh, one who came and went to the cross and died for sin. 
You know, one of the things that I, I, I've often heard a lot is, well, we, we gather around the name of Jesus. In other words, we speak the name of Jesus, so somehow that, that, that means that, well, the, it means nothing. When, when the Bible uses the term the name of Jesus, it's talking about the content of his life, who he was, what he stood for. So we always have to be on guard on the Jesus that's being talked about here. What Jesus is it? We face it in circles where Jesus is simply presented as your best friend. He's there to get you out of a tight spot. He's a Jesus who asks nothing of you except to be happy. That's a different Jesus than we have in the Bible. Or a different spirit, you know, the spirit of individualism. You know, Get what you deserve whenever you can. Be concerned only about yourself. After all, nobody else will be concerned about you. David Wells wrote another book. Um, it's called God in the Wasteland, The Reality of Truth in a World of Fading Dreams. And about this, he writes, this world is the way in which our collective life in society and the culture that goes with it is organized around the self in substitution for God. It is a life characterized by self-righteousness, self-centeredness, self-satisfaction, self-aggrandizement, and self-promotion with a corresponding distaste for the self-denial proper to union with Christ. But this is not the spirit of life presented in Scripture. This is not the work or the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives who makes and brings joy, who brings meaning to our lives and security. We're also concerned for those that are led astray by a different gospel. It might go by a number of names, easy believism. It might go by the health-wealth gospel. It might go by the gospel of works or the gospel of guilt. All those things that the Judaizers were trying to put over and scamming the Corinthians. See, anything that declares that salvation is by something other than the grace of God through Christ's sacrifice is a different gospel. Uh, we would do well to hear and heed the words of the preacher Paul again when he writes to the Galatians and he says, but even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. That's pretty strong language. Tough words by a tough preacher. Paul's opponents in Corinth dismissed him as being inferior. In fact, one of the reasons that they said was because Paul didn't demand money from them for his ministry. Now, he wrote to other churches talking about how he was deserving of support as any other one working amongst them, but he refused to take any from the Corinthians, which interestingly was a far more wealthy church than a lot of the other churches. For example, the churches in Macedonia, Berea, Thessalonica, um, the Philippians. So this was a wealthier church, but he said, I'm not going to. And it seems to be in response to the false apostles who were taking money and saying that this was evidence of their superiority. You know, it was a badge of honor that, that they extorted money from the Corinthians for their ministry, lording it over them. So look what Paul says in his defense. I'm picking up in 2 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 7. Paul says, or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. 
And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I'm doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men, now here's where he lowers the boom on these false teachers, these super apostles. He said, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Now, this doesn't mean that money was irrelevant to Paul. Remember, he spent two full chapters, chapters 8 and 9, talking about money. And specifically talking about giving. But Paul was willing to go without for the sake of those that he sought to serve. He didn't want to be a burden to them. He didn't want to take advantage of them. And he did not want to come across just like those other false apostles that were there. And he gets kind of tough on them, doesn't he? Look in verse 13. And he shows how deceptive these folks were following in the footsteps of Satan himself. You see, counterfeits always have enough truth in them to deceive people. There's got to be enough truth in there. I mean, who's going to be led astray by a $3 bill with a picture of Batman on it? Not going to happen. Not going to happen. And that's why we have to be diligent and discerning about the truth. Error is so subtle. And it comes cloaked in truth. And we've got to be discerning to sort it out. Otherwise, that's what leads people astray. If you've never read it, you really ought to read C.S. Lewis's satire called The Screwtape Letters. It's just a delightful uh, satire, and it's all about a senior demon by the name of Screwtape who's writing letters of advice to his nephew, who's a junior demon, uh, Wormwood. And, and, and in one of them, here's what he says. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. How very important it is that we are steeped in the truth of God from his word that we can discern the counterfeits. That when we hear something, or, you know, we can say, wait a minute, that just doesn't sound right. We can go back and we can explore it and we can discover whether it, whether it uh, conforms to the truth or not. It requires a discernment of the spirit. It requires a knowledge of God's word and the ability to take it and apply it and use it. And it involves the willingness to stand up and to declare the truth. Um, Paul ends the section of chapter, that's in chapter 11. Remember, these chapter headings are not inspired. They were added much time later. But he's going he's to lay out his credentials. He's going, he's going to compare and contrast himself with the false apostles that are there. And he's going to do some boasting. This is so anathema to Paul. You know, so he opens the, the whole chapter. I wish you'd bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. And, and, and it's the worst thing. It's the last thing he wants to do is to boast. But he feels like he has no alternative uh, because he's forced into it because of the boasting of these so-called super apostles. You know, it really is what Proverbs 26 says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. That's really what Paul's doing. 
at the end of this chapter. So he engages in what is to him a very distasteful thing. So look at the text starting at verse 16. Paul says, I repeat, let no one think me foolish. But even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I may too boast a little. What I'm saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. And then almost in exasperation, he says, I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys. In danger from rivers. Danger from robbers. Dangers from my own people. Dangers from Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night. In hunger and thirst. Often without food in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who's made to fall and I'm not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Eratos, was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Wow. Um, Paul turns boasting upside down. The false apostles, they boasted of letters of commendation from other churches, uh, saying how wonderful they were. They, they boasted of taking money from the churches for their ministry. They boasted of their rhetorical skills, of, of the prowess of their reasoning and their speaking, their supposed wisdom and knowledge. They boasted of their ecstatic experiences. They boasted of their abundant life. And the list just goes on and on and on. And Paul turns it up on its end and he boasts of his sufferings. This, he says, validates his apostleship. On top of his sufferings are his concerns for the church, the pressure on him for the well-being of all those that he had introduced to Christ. If he asked to boast, he says, it'll be of his weaknesses. It'll be of his failures. It'll be of his sufferings. It'll be of his pastoral concerns. I guess the most important thing for us to see is how differently God views things. And how we as his children are to share in his perspective. And, and, and to adopt it as our own. God measures success differently than people do. You know, we, we tend to go for numbers and size and notoriety and popularity, and money, things like that. 
God looks for Christ-likeness. He looks for humility. He looks for obedience. The world recognizes and applauds human achievement. God honors those who acknowledge and exhibit Christ's grace, giving glory to the one who's given all things to us. I want to just leave you this morning with the end of Romans. These, These are Paul's closing words in that letter, it comes with a warning and with a blessing. Listen, listen to these words from Romans 16. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you pray with me? God, thank you that you have not left us to muddle around here trying to figure out what's true or false. What's truth or error? What's right or wrong? Lord, you've given us your word. You've given us your indwelling spirit to lead us into all truth. And so, God, would you help us to grow up into Christ? Would you help us to set aside time to be in your word, to be with other Christians, to be talking with you and listening to you? God, would you help us to become more and more grounded in the truth? that we might accurately believe and accurately present to others your truth. Thank you that you have left us your word, and may your word indeed be found in our hearts, that we might know the truth, that we might hold to the truth, that we might share the truth. And we thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen.